This is the life. Boom, 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 boom. All right, welcome. <laughs> welcome back to Playhype Dialogue. We are talking this week about the amazing Netflix musical, Tick, Tick, Boom. This is Mela and Carlos. We are missing Omar this week, but that's okay. He'll be back with us shortly. Carlos, what up? I am good. I'm really excited to talk about this show today and to talk about the life of Jonathan Larson and uh, his legacy and musical theater. I am ready to jump in. I'm very excited too. Um, I watched <laughs> Tick, Tick, Boom for the fourth time yesterday in prep for this. So pretty hype. I know you were into it as well. Um, and I also know we were going to chat a little bit at the beginning of this episode about some other stuff that's going on in media and pop culture and also the world. So one thing, fun tidbit, is that The Godfather actually turned 50 this week or is turning 15, 50, excuse me, on March 15th, which is pretty interesting just because in our Luca episode, mm-hmm. I was. <laughs> went off on this conversational tangent that did reference the godfather so if you didn't get to hear that and you're interested in you know italian american representation or the godfather or you just love to hear me speak which is also fantastic (laughs) go back and check that episode out but the new york times did some fun coverage of of it as well with an interview with al pacino it's always kind of interesting there's some fun footage of available on the internet somewhere of of folks auditioning for the roles oh wow um, so it's just pretty incredible 50 years later still big movie still considered one of the crates yeah no it's definitely up there like when people talk about like classic film that's one of the the, the top movies in 50 years oh my god yeah. it doesn't feel like that like the last time i watched it it doesn't feel like it was that long ago you know it really doesn't and it's like sometimes I watch films from like 1998 and I'm like wow this is so dated (laughs) you watch The Godfather and it really does not feel that that dated yeah I mean clearly that's one of the hallmarks of a good movie very true jumping forward in time while also going back in time question mark (laughs) (laughs) um the season two trailer for Bridgerton is out it is hot I see (laughs) it's a little saucy (laughs) so we did an episode on season one we are coming back for season two i am personally very excited because the people are beautiful we i i will speak for myself the people are beautiful and i love to watch (laughs) there's one scene with anthony in the water in his white shirt that is like clinging clinging to his body and i'm like Sir, (laughs) (laughs) I know the actor who plays you is not straight in real life. So please, again, slide into my DMs. Oh, good tidbits. Good info. Good intel. (laughs) (laughs) The thirst is real on Playhide Dialogue. Yeah, I think the big thing I saw a lot of people saying was like the chemistry is looking real, real tight, looking real good. Um, I watched the trailer. I'm very excited. The casting looks on point. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what happens. I'm excited to see that story go in a new direction. Yes. So we'll definitely yes. be covering that in a couple of weeks. Speaking of trailers, <laughs> uh, a trailer also came out for Secrets of Dumbledore, which is the third installment in the Fantastic Beasts Harry Potter spinoff prequel, um, which comes out in the beginning of April. Meanwhile, she who must not be named, <laughs> you know what author, you know who. <laughs> continues her online assault against um trans rights basically she 
It's been really deciding that this is the hill that she wants to die on and just really spreading some some super problematic and, and super concerning, I, beyond concerning, that's not even mm-hmm. the right language, um, some really dangerous narratives about trans folks as kind of a threat um, and especially as kind of some, a force that like undermines the rights of women and girls. So that sucks because the Harry Potter fandom, Harry Potter, the stories have meant a lot to a lot of people mm-hmm. and the fandom has been not a perfect place at all, but yeah. but a fandom that has like tried to center around the positive themes in those stories. So <laughs> it's a real bummer for me to watch kind of like a childhood icon just spin off. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Nicole Byer in her uh, recent Netflix stand-up special calls her JKKK probably <laughs> with extra Ks for the KKK, um, which when I heard her do that whole bit on Harry Potter, I fell out. It was great. Um, but yeah, no, it really makes it difficult to enjoy the new Harry Potter stuff that comes out because you know, she's getting coins from this and she continues to spout her transphobic and transmisogynistic tirades at the same time that we're seeing in places like Idaho and in Texas and in various states in the U.S. where um, legislatures and governors are trying to pass and signing these bills that would screw over trans youth, would stop trans people from engaging in the uh, life-saving healthcare that they need to get access to uh, resources, information. Um, There's the don't say gay bill, which is going to screw over lots of LGBT youth um, in Florida that's on DeSantis's desk to sign. Like there's so many levels of uh, fucked up, homo, trans, phobic, antagonistic, heterosexist, like, all of these really terrible things are happening. And one of the heads of the cultural juggernaut that is the Harry Potter universe continues to like align herself with these voices that um, are leaning far right and fascist. And it's just really upsetting because now for a lot of people, when they think Harry Potter, they think transphobia rather than like magic and rising above and fighting the good fight, which is just, really sad. And then it's like all of that on top of all of the other legal issues we're facing here in the US and then internationally with Ukraine. And there's just so many things happening. But it is nice when we need it to have some escapism, which is necessary and great, but also to engage with art that is political and that has a statement and a message like what we're talking about today. I think that's a good segue. (laughs) You're on mute. I'm on mute. Yeah. <laughs> but I said, yes, that segue is on point right now. And indeed it was. Nice, Carlos. Um, so we're, let's talk a little bit about Tick, Tick, Boom. It is really refreshing to turn on something that is joyful. I love musicals. So if that's not your thing, that's not your thing. But for me, it's really enjoyable. And then, yeah, that has some explicit kind of political narrative and themes built into the original work and then doubly kind of built into the structure of it as a film, which is leveraging Jonathan Larson's show that he wrote right before Rent to then also tell his story of the years of his life that were kind of leading up to or preceding the phenomenon that became Rent and preceded his his death at the age of 35 the night before Rent opened, which is 
just like a really unbelievably tragic story. When I say unbelievable, of course it's believable because we I think many, many people grew up kind of knowing that story or heard of it. I really enjoyed the film. Well, I guess we'll do initial thoughts and reactions. And all I really want to say is like, <laughs> I've been saying this is like almost a little bit embarrassing, but I'm going to say it again. I really felt like not to have like rose colored glasses, but for me, just w- the way the themes in this show hit at the time that it came out, I feel like it like was life changing mm-hmm. for me, just in the way that it tracks his journey with, creating and doubt over an artistic life and aging Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and also just yeah like everything the environment the story was really um, I loved it and it was really impactful for me I really feel like I've been carrying it with me since I watched it when it first came out Carlos, what are your thoughts? I know you watched it for the first time last night, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I uh, re-watched it before this as much as I could. As you were talking, like, my eyes started to well up. Like, it is a really emotional, in a way that I didn't expect it to be. I'm like, oh, it's a musical, and it's going to hit me in my feels like many musicals do. There's just something about the way the themes hit in this particular moment of my life. It's something that I know we've talked about before on this show that you've talked about on your uh, podcast, The Millennial PhD. It's something that's sort of in the zeitgeist right now as millennials and Gen Z are trying to figure out what we're doing with our existence while we're on the brink of climate collapse and uh, war. And I'm not going to get into it because I know that's not why people tune into the show. (laughs) To like (laughs) climate change in minute 12. Debbie Downer Carlos but it sort of it hit that spot and the music it just works really well to tell the story so the sort of cliff notes it's based on um, a sort of semi-autobiographical show that he put together that after his um, death was turned into a musical um, and has sort of become a a phenomenon in its own right um, that metaphor of the ticking clock like Tomorrow isn't promised, and we know this, like the pandemic has taught us that there really is no promise for tomorrow. And then sort of looping that in with all of the systems and the way we as millennials were raised, it just, it brought up a lot of those um, those feelings and some of those deep-seated anxieties about getting older, about um, creativity, about relationship, about disease and dying. Um, it just tapped into so many different things and it just, I'm still in the glow or the, I don't know if glow is the right word, but I'm still in the uh, after effects of watching it for the first time and replaying the soundtrack. It's just, it's powerful stuff. It's really powerful stuff. Yeah. And I will say, I tried to listen to the soundtrack for Tick, Tick, Boom years ago, kind of after I learned about Rent and then I heard that, Jonathan Larson had passed away in this in this in this manner and that he, there had been a show beforehand and I like I could not understand it I think you know I was pretty young and I didn't understand or connect with it it's, it's weird you know if you listen I think they staged it in 2001 and there's a there's a soundtrack and on its own it can be a little bit strange but what they did with this movie is like they took the some of the best parts of Jonathan Larson's 
work from Tick, Tick, Boom and some of his other work from the show had, that had preceded even that, which was Superbia. And they just wove it together. They, they, they made it so that it was still all his music. Um, and the, so the score of the film is entirely Jonathan Larson, like no co-writer, um, like Lin Manuel Miranda directed it, but he didn't he didn't write new music for it. Which the first time I watched it, I thought maybe he had, um, but but he didn't. They just wove it together, and so it's really beautifully done, kind of tapestry of Jonathan Larson's pre-rent work that then again also tells his own biographical story, which is really powerful. It's a really powerful story and sort of digging deeper into it with Tick, Tick, Boom and learning about his life. Um, it sort of gives a bit more salience to Rent, um, mm. which for me is how I came to um, know who he was. I was like in high school, I think, <laughs> um, when I saw Rent on stage around when the musical, um, movie musical um, had come out. And so that was really my entry point into um, Jonathan Larson and the the power that Rent had and um, the the careers it launched and yeah it's really interesting and beautiful and powerful to be able to look before that and see the road that led to that and then to know that he didn't get to see where it went the the sort of melancholic sadness but also beauty in releasing something into the world and having people carry it beyond your passing. Mm, nice, yeah. So I mean, that's how I came to to rent in this story. Do you have a a rent story? Yeah, definitely. I I do. Um, yeah, I think I think a lot of I think a lot of people in our generation kind of came to rent came out in like the mid nineties. I remember in the late nineties, I actually have a specific memory of like my parents wanted to go see it. And I was like being a little little jerk. And I was like, you're going to see this, like something without me, like how come I can't go? I remember my mom being like, this is like, it's for adults. Like, and also like, we're not going to take your little (laughs) (laughs) to a Broadway show. And so I remember I had heard of it when I was quite young and then a couple years later discovered it through the the Broadway soundtrack during the time period where like I was downloading it from like LimeWire (laughs) oh so we're gonna do that we're gonna have the nostalgia and the throwback today um so it must have been the the very late 90s or the early 2000s maybe like Mm -hmm. 2000 2001 type time period and I just remember like just loving it and I think for so many people Rent had this effect where the music was incredible the themes felt so salient and so on point the cast was really diverse and was so really relatable it was it felt modern it was it was just this electric kind of entryway that we were so privileged in our age group to have when we were relatively young and I know Lynn (laughs) always talks about how that changed his perception of what could be a Broadway musical and that mm-hmm. that led to some of his work so you can see the connectivity there which is is kind of cool I know we've talked about some of the critiques of Lynn I think we've talked about them on the podcast but we've also talked about them personally mm-hmm. but nonetheless like his body of work has been really impactful in and of itself but 
for me, yeah, I just, I just loved it. And it made me feel connected to music and performance and dance in a way that I just, you know, memorize all the lyrics and, and sing them in my room. Um, and I, I get, I did get eventually get to see it um, on Broadway, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. And then the movie musical came out and I actually in, I think it was 2013, I got to be in a production of rent in when I was living as a dancer in LA and that was like such an important moment to me and such a wonderful experience were you Um, Mimi Marquez clad only in bubble wrap (laughs) no I wish I wish I was somebody no I was like you know like background person (laughs) still great though okay there's not a lot of background people in rent so I get to get to do a lot of this stuff um no it was was a lot of fun um it was fantastic to be part of that you know, all the people, a lot of the people I was in that show with, they're really professional performers now still. Mm, um, awesome. And some of them are on Broadway or on national tours with big shows and everything. So it was a really professional performance, but it was just amazing to inhabit that show. So, yeah, it's been, you know, it's been something I come back to every couple of years, I think. Um, but, yeah, like you said, like like every, like most of us, Rent was the segue into the story about Jonathan Larson. Shall we talk about your favorite musical number or scene from the film? Hmm, this is tough. Um, part of me wants to go with the Carmela rendition of <laughs> <laughs> This is the light. Bo, 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 bo. <laughs> um, the, the swimming pool scene. Um, mm. I think just it happens in movies often. And sometimes I'm like, oh, like it's very sort of a cliche moment. Like, person gets in a pool and they have an epiphany but something about it it hit different just like seeing him putting it together and the music coming to life along the lines of the floor of the pool like visually it was stunning um sort of that moment of having your breakthrough and it's like I gotta get to a piece of paper I gotta write this down um so I don't forget and then that becoming the thing um I really I really enjoyed Enjoyed that scene. 3090. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <sighs> yeah, yeah. 3090 just, I mean, we're going to talk about it because we have to. Yeah. <laughs> as time we goes will. on in the episode, but as time goes on, as time goes on. <laughs> so I think those are going to be my two um, swimming and then 3090. Uh, but like, all of the musical numbers for what they are, are really great. I know some people um, might have some preferences, like they're like, oh, this isn't a great song. Um, but I think they all do what they're supposed to do in the, the course of the story. Yeah, definitely. I loved at the beginning and the end when we were, we like shoot back and forth. So 3090 um, and then also the last so- song of Fear or Love. Um, definitely 3090 is popping. I, I think it, it might probably be my kind of like special personal favorite. I think again, probably just because it's really resonant, but also you just love everything they do in it. And I love the performance that, um, Andrew Garfield and Robin de Jesus were giving in that. And Sunday was incredibly <sighs> special, mm-hmm. but I almost feel like it shouldn't even be in the running. Cause it was just its whole own other thing. So as one that hasn't been said yet, though, I forget the name, but the scene where he sits down at the piano after finding out that his friend Michael is HIV positive mm. and he goes and sits um, and he sings, when I was younger, 
Michael and I got parts in Wilson at White Plains High. I'm mixing up the verses, but that that was bobbing. Like, come yeah. on. Um, so it was it was good, back to back good, back to back beautiful musical numbers, great movement. Mm-hmm. Not not a ton of dancing because it's not that type of musical in the sense of there being formal dancing, but there's just incredible dance and movement threaded throughout it. Mm-hmm. Loved it. Loved it. It felt really because we're going to talk about sort of how this has affected us. I think there's a certain level of the way the movement worked. It's like, I could see us doing stuff like this in our apartments, like having a game night and then like breaking out into song and just like beep bopping around. Like I need more friends that will do that with me. So if you, I know you'll do it. Carlos, but if you're listening and you want to be friends with me like that and fucking break out into song at game night, like hit me up. I am ready. <laughs> yes, we definitely need more, especially now that we're grown-ups. Cause I remember everyone would make fun of theater kids and like the theater kids stereotype, but it's like me and my friends have definitely broken out the song in public. <laughs> to rent. Were, were you a, were you a theater kid, Carlos? Yes, yes. I can't believe we skipped that. Weren't you in my... (laughs) Tell me, tell me, tell me. So uh, the first musical, the first show ever I did was in the sixth grade. I played Rooster Hannigan. Tell me, tell me the Cliff Notes version. (laughs) Carlos was like, when I was five years old. When I was a young warthog. (laughs) (laughs) When he was a young warthog. So I did Annie um, in the sixth grade, and that sort of gave me the bug. Um, I transferred to an arts middle school and high school because they were linked five through 12. Um, And so I did music, and then I did um, TV and film production, which was eventually what the major was called. Um, But during that time, I did 12 Angry Jurors, which is like 12 Angry Men, but with uh, um, mixed gender casting. Um, And we did Stand and Deliver. So I didn't do any musicals in high school. Um, but yeah, we were singing Rent songs. We were defying yeah. gravity. We were doing all of the things. I was in all, I was in all the shows, all the shows. I was always a dancer, you know, but I never, I never had a, a named part, um, but I was still popping. So go ahead, be jealous. Let's talk about 3090, which obviously resonated for us in this question of age and aging. Um, talk to me that it hit me in the feels when I was listening to the soundtrack in preparation for the film coming out. And I was just, yes, first of all, I'm 33. <laughs> I was like, I needed this a couple of years ago, first of all. Um, but second of all, even so it's just really resonates with that question of getting older and being an artist and feeling like, have I done what I wanted to do? Am I spending my time in the way that I want to and putting my art and my creativity out into the world. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, this sense of like time running out. Part of that is tied in with the idea that we have in our society that like you're basically, um, you're stale <laughs> after a certain age. But I will say, I think our generation is really combating that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that norm is changing. And especially, I think it was particularly dire for for women um oh for sure (laughs) um but for everybody i think you know there's this idea of like if you haven't done it by a certain age then like you missed it like you're no longer the ingenue or the up-and-comer and so to hear him this like admirable character 
grapple with that was like a salve to the soul. Um, talk to me, Carlos, what'd you think? Yeah, no, that was one of the numbers that hit me in the feels too. I remember turning 30 not too long ago. Um, I'm 32 as of this recording. <laughs> um, <laughs> gonna be 33 in like two weeks. <laughs> and I was like, oh, like turning 30 didn't feel like a crisis for me. Um, Like some people turning 30 is like, it's a big deal. Like growing up, we saw lots of TV and movies where it's like, oh my God, I'm 29, my youth is over. And obviously that is very gendered and classed and um, all that, but 30 didn't hit like that. I think um, because I was going through a spiritual process that sort of was shifting things for me. I was still in graduate school trying to finish um, data collection and or writing the dissertation. I'm not sure it's all a blur (laughs) on the other side. Um, But being in my early 30s, being 32, trying to figure out what comes next, what I should have done by now. Like growing up, I always felt like the mid 30s was kind of it for some reason. Like I had to do stuff by then. I don't know. I felt like there was a clock of some sort, not in the way the sort of tick tick is happening for Jonathan in this show, but am I going to make it that far? And then now trying to be on the other side of the PhD, trying to figure out what comes next, like doing this creative pursuit, doing creative writing, like is it too late? Like, I know logically it's not too late. Like there are tons of people like Oprah, um, Alan Rickman, um, Ava DuVernay. Like there are lots of people who have quote unquote made it later. Like it wasn't a, a youthful thing. And a lot of the people who made it young, some of them had like financial support from families or like their parents' names are italicized because they're hyperlinks on Wikipedia. Like <laughs> it's a different thing, but just thinking about being part of this generation like that was around for the year 2000 for Y2K for um September 11th for like COVID like we've been through Mm -hmm. some of these big historical moments and it's like time keeps moving forward (laughs) what am I doing with my life I just spent 10 years getting a PhD and now I'm uh, spoiler alert, if we haven't spoken about it, I might not be doing academia going forward. Like, <laughs> did I just waste 10 years of my life? Did, did I, I waste have a my decade 20s? long fever dream? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? And like, the pivot I want to make is into something creative, which is like not any easier or less homophobic or racist or sexist than academia is. I'm like, so yes, um, long story short, I had a lot of feels <laughs> about that that really triggered a lot of my fears about getting older and not having done enough. And like, if tomorrow I go, what are people going to say at my funeral? Like, I know you have an effect on people and that people will remember how you made them feel. And I like to think that the majority of people in my life who would show up at that event would feel that I love them. They would know that that was, they would know that that is something that they got and that 
is enough. Like in an anti-capitalist society, like loving people and caring for them is enough. But just the world we live, like, if you haven't seen Tick, Tick, Boom, stop this episode and go watch it now so you can cry with me. <laughs> I mean, it's waterworks for sure, no matter how many times I watched it. Yeah, it's just, and I think we all go through it, but something about being at the juncture he was at writing this in the dawn of the 90s when a lot of things were shifting and we're dealing with the AIDS epidemic and now with us going into our 30s in the 20s where there's a whole new set of problems and still some of the old problems and like yeah I'm gonna stop talking because I'm just talking in circles and not making sense no you are making sense and you and I have talked about this a lot one-on-one and I'm sure it's resonating with a lot of people listening as well and and I want to put out there for for folks listening, just so we don't only ruminate on the the fear part of this question, I do feel that just because something is or has been a certain type of way doesn't need doesn't mean it needs to continue to be that way, and that's uh-huh. true for our, our personal individual lives and for our social world. And it's not too late because we're here still. And the beauty, I know this is so hard because sometimes our conditions just like can be crushing, but the beauty of this whole thing and especially artistic journey is in the journey and is in the process of doing. And there's that great line that you you had brought up as well to me last night when we were texting Carlos, where his agent says, you just keep, you start on the next one. And then after that, you start on the next one and keep throwing it at the wall and hope something sticks. And that's what it is to be a writer. And I think that's, that it, that's what it is to be a writer. It's what it is to be an artist. That's what it is to be a creative. And it has to be because it's so scary and it's so challenging in terms of resources. A lot of the time, even if you're not just like an independent artist, but if you're trying to do anything different or trying to do something creative, like it the fear can just overwhelm you so it has to be about the process because it may or may not we you don't know what's going to hit you know and so it has to be about faith in the the possibilities that are on their way and about finding the joy in the process otherwise it can just be so soul crushing Mm -hmm. um so you got this (laughs) out there you listening what up over 30 club over 40 club what up um, over 60 about, over 70 let's over everybody got this let's talk about that the the nostalgia piece i i felt some pretty strong nostalgia um just because you referenced it a couple of minutes ago kind of like 90s references and context my whole heart felt this as i was watching and like i said i was watching with my partner and um, I said, why do we, why are we feeling this way? Like we were pretty young in 1990, right? <laughs> a couple of years old. Um, and I was just, you know, just the, the visuals of what was supposed to be early nineties, New York, just gave me this vibe and this feeling that like, this is the world that like, when I was, be- when I was learning what the world was, this was the world around me. Mm-hmm. And so I had this very powerful nostalgia feeling like this is what, 
adults and like humans look like when I was learning what people are you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. this is what like the my surroundings looked like when I was like learning how to navigate the world so that was I love that that gave me like serious heart feelings I also said to Carlos that um I don't know they played that song Love Shack (laughs) and did anybody else think that Love Shack was from like 1969 and I'm like, oh, it's a great touch. They're playing music that's like 20 years old then because, you know, that's just like what we would do right now is like listen to early 2000s music at a party. Come to find out that's, that song came out in 1989. <laughs> <laughs> but in fairness to you, <laughs> the B-52s do have that like 60s like <laughs> aesthetic to them with like the the hair the costumes yeah, like yeah it's a vibe that's where it comes from but it's just funny i put in the episode notes and everything <laughs> and i looked it up and i was like okay never mind uh carlos how was your nostalgia experience it's a period piece and it doesn't feel like one like it's just which is how a period piece should be. I just have to hop in here for a second because we were just talking earlier about how The Godfather doesn't feel like it was made in 1972. And the thing is, it's like sometimes when we do period pieces, we just ham it up and like overdo it. It's like the 70s and there's flowers and revolution in the air. <laughs> I think the revolution was really in the air, but I don't know if the flowers were as widespread as we think they, as mm-hmm. we think they were. You know, sometimes we, we, we get cartoonish by adding period touches and I think this did a perfect job like this time period was not that long ago there was a lot that was different and there's a lot that people are still people right Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and the reason that's important is because I think we do that sometimes when we throw back a hundred years too Mm -hmm. and we're like I don't know people were just different back then and it's like they weren't they were just doing awful things (laughs) yeah just like we are yeah now looking at like sorry I just bit all over your nostalgia. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. Cause I think about so my grandma loved to take pictures. Like she's one of my artistic inspirations and a way that I sort of forget because it's just the way she lived her life. Um, so she always had a camera and then she always had her video camera. And so she was always taking pictures and taking video. And so growing up we would watch my parents' childhood videos. Like we'd watch my mom when she was a kid. We'd watch her as a teenager. She has mad photo albums. And so just like you could pull my parents out of those photo albums and put them in these scenes and they'd fit right in because they were dressed like that. They were like carrying themselves like that. And so it's just, I think that hit helped to hit the emotional beats that it did. Because for our generation, like, we have some of those memories in there. We were watching TV shows and movies, and those were formative for us. And so it taps in. And it's also that 30-year cycle, um, 20-year cycle thing where it's like, what's old is new again. It's like, the 90s are back. We're remaking the Ninja Turtles. We're redoing Power Rangers. And it's like, now we're getting into the 2000s. It's like, oh, we're, we're going to redo those again? <laughs> um the political commentary being still so Mm. salient today is like, fuck. (laughs) We haven't progressed as much as we perhaps would have liked looking forward from back then. Um, Yeah, let's jump into that too, because they do, I mean, first of all, it's like the backdrop of this. I mean, the whole major theme of Rent is the AIDS crisis 
And this is heart, you know, hearkening to this time period and also to um, the kind of anti-queer rhetoric that was super, super big in the late 80s um, into the, the early 90s. And it feels like we've done a cycle almost in the sense that like there was, it seems like, there, I mean, there were, were some, was some tangible progress being made and now we're looping back to a very similar kind of moral majority-esque push. And the thing about us, even progressives who are involved in social movements is I feel like collectively we, we have short-term memory. And so we don't always see how our struggles are part of a continuum and how our movements are part of a continuum. Everybody can barely remember a couple of years ago. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, so th- I think same thing that you were getting at is like watching this, it looped me back like, wow, you know, just in the course of our lifetimes, this is what the cycle has done. Yeah. And I think to sort of pivot back to what we were talking about at the start of the episode today with um, these anti-gay and anti-trans bills are very similar in, if not language and outcome for queer folks, um, that some of these folks like Jesse Helms, who there's a TV spot where he's talking about, uh, if gay people just stopped being gay, the AIDS crisis would be over. And it's like, mm. that's not the, <laughs> the way we handle a pandemic or an epidemic. And it's like, lesson learned, actually, no, not really. Um but then the history piece is like, we're not teaching history. And there's this whole anti-critical race theory um, mm. conversation. It's like, most of the people talking about it don't even know what critical race is or critical race theory is, or that it comes from critical legal studies, or that it has this specific history in the specific set of disciplines that then was adapted to other fields like sociology. It's like, no, what you're talking about is not teaching accurate history. So then we forget that, Slavery as a historical moment wasn't just people passively accepting slavery. There were tons of slave revolts and tons of rebellions that we just don't talk about as part of our mainstream historical education. We don't talk about all of the Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn has People's History of the United States, Voices of the People History with Arnov, which, while not being perfect texts, do tell some alternative pieces of the story that we're not getting from our textbooks and so like activists yes and social movement people and organizers need a longer historical memory but i think the u.s in general needs a better historical memory because it's like yeah we're spiraling in it's like jk rowling is the moral majority of uh the late 80s early 90s like show her (laughs) you don't live here (laughs) she's the jerry falwell the pat robertson like and i'm not trying to give her too much credit and she's certainly not the only one but it's like yeah you are infamous for being a transphobe at this moment in history it's like which is unfortunate because on other stuff she's been she's been she's been all right which is just like way to undermine that yeah. Um, but anyway, I don't even want to give her more time. But yeah, they don't care what, what critical race theory is <laughs> specifically. Nope. All they what they're using it to stand in for is any kind of education that's race race conscious or racism conscious at all, which is like an entire all of US history. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and now they're throwing so... sexuality in the mix. Like if heterosexuality isn't a sexual orientation, like if you're gonna talk about mommy and daddy you're talking about sexuality, Mm. but that's not 
the level the conversation is at. Um, if I sound bitter and angry, it's because I'm angry. Because <laughs> I'm bitter and angry. <laughs> I think this is also this is like not that big of a leap to talk about how the superbia play that was Jonathan Larson's play before Tick Tick Boom. Just if anybody watching this movie, like this play that he must have been writing in like from in the mid eighties, basically into mm-hmm. the late eighties, because. It, it's it, yeah. yeah um, he said eight years he was working on it, so that's like right, eighty-two right. to ninety, like. And right, and that was before Tick Tick Boom. Mm-hmm. Um, and point is, it's it's a little bit, it's very uncomfortably prophetic in its description of like a society where people are just tied to their um, little like face tabs, little like s- squares where they watch the lives of wealthy and powerful people and are just, you know, kind of obsessed with that. And somebody wins like a face award. It's so such a strong um, echo of our social media consumption habit and everything that comes along with it in terms of fetishizing commodities and people all day every day and people and wealthy wealth and wealthy people and ooh, I was like my guy so we were saying before we started recording that like just looking at something like the reality television that we consume with like um Kim Kardashian and the Kardashian family like we are doing what he was sort of satirizing in and it's his transcended play. too it's like reality tv was like the like late oh the late 2000s and the early 2010s and now it's just like we carry it around with us and consume it in 15 and 30 second tidbits all day every day and Mm -hmm. we're all struggling with it right I don't need to I don't need to ask you if you're struggling with the audience because (laughs) I know you're struggling with it because everybody is struggling with their mental and emotional health and I I don't mean to rally in social media like I use social media all the time um and I I like it in a lot of ways follow us on Instagram (laughs) Anyway, M-E-L-A-M-U-Z-I-O, Melamuzio. Hit me up. My reels are popping. <laughs> but no, I cut you off to make a, a social media No, 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 you're joke. good. That's it. This topic is, 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 is good. Um, let's talk about a few other things. I feel we're already running pretty long. So let's talk about, first of all, that Sunday scene was oh incredible. I don't think there's much to say except it's like legends only absolutely beautiful musical theater actors all up in there Mm -hmm. so dope considering what musical theater and performance art has been going through during the pandemic dance theater has just been struggling obviously and understandably Mm -hmm. um so that was incredible the references that were in there um carlos do you have anything to add about that scene i just feel like if you're not going to watch this movie like maybe at least youtube Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) the the diner scene sunday sunday Uh it was so powerful. Like I didn't expect it. So I really went into this blind outside of it's about Jonathan Larson's life before mm-hmm. rent leading up to rent. So I knew how it was going to end. Um, but seeing that scene with all of these Broadway legends, like um, Felicia Rashad, Cheetah Rivera, you've got some of the original cast of Rent there. I said, there. not Cheetah Rivera, just <laughs> popping up out of nowhere. I said, oh, shit. So Bernadette like, Peters, like Bernadette Peters, Joel Grey. I did not expect it. So just, mm-hmm. I read an article, um, I think it was from Vox, where 
it talked about um, Lin-Manuel Miranda putting that scene together and trying to coordinate to get everyone there. And just thinking about that in the conversation we had earlier about 3090 and this transition that a lot of us are dealing with right now with like, what does it mean to live this life? What have we done? Where are we going to give Jonathan this moment that he didn't have where these legends are in this daydream, in this number, out of time. Um, You've got current day Bernadette Peters talking to, in the early 90s, Jonathan Larson in this daydream. Like, not all of us get to see the result. Like you mentioned earlier, Melo, that it's about the process, about loving the process and going through the process. And in this moment, he gets to, in spirit, through uh, Garfield's portrayal, get to have that moment where all these Broadway legends are there singing his song. Like, mm. bringing to life his vision to, um, mm. to share that. And I think that's what made it extra powerful. It's like, at first I'm watching the scene and I'm like, oh, that guy looks kind of familiar. That looks kind of familiar. And then it breaks into the song and I'm like, oh my God. And then it's just like, boom, explosion gif. Like, it just was a touchstone, again, sort of, doubling down on the power of creation, of making Mm. your art, of putting it out there. And it's like what Rosa, Judith Light's character, his agent was saying, it's like, see what sticks, this Mm. stuck. This was one of the the scenes that I I thought on my first watch, somewhat ignorantly, that I thought this was one that like Lynn and company had written as their own parody because it's a, it's a, parody of a Sondheim song from Sunday in the Park with George and so I was like oh this is they like wrote this and then realized that Jonathan Larson wrote it and would do it as a comedic take as part of his show cholesterol yeah (laughs) but then they decided to basically give it the like a serious treatment and that was such a that was a great choice so we also have I guess I think a lot of thread running through our conversations is the same tension that holds the film together and the story together which is that tension between fear and love um right and there's a moment in the trailer where uh robin de jesus's character says are you letting yourself be led by fear or by love and it's in the movie but in the trailer version um andrew garfield as jonathan larson (laughs) answers back fear absolutely (laughs) and that that had that had me on my back. I thought that was so funny, um, and such like a, again a really resonant audio clip. Um, but I feel like we've talked about that a good amount. So maybe Carlos, do you have anything to add about that, or maybe we can move into just talking a little bit more about queer representation and or some of the casting choices for the film. That's sort of the the ultimate statement of the the movie. It's like, how are we going to move? I hope with love. We we talked in the beginning of this episode about our early experiences with Rent. And I think a big piece of what hit about Rent for me, and I'm sure for a lot of other people, was that this story of like no day but today. Um, and I was dealing with an intense existential threat as a teenager, existential dread <laughs> as a teenager. And I think that comes circles back around for a lot of us every so often if not Uh constantly (laughs) and but just the idea of like what are you going to do with the time that you have 
And so this is this really powerful theme that runs through his work in his very short time with us. Um, and even though there's a critique just pivoting into the conversation about queer representation and justice for queer communities, there's definitely a critique to be made that like Rent is held up as like the seminal text on mm -hmm. that time period and, and about the experience of the early HIV AIDS epidemic and its impact on the queer community. And it's like, he was ultimately a straight man who, was, mm -hmm. who wrote, and then like, this is like the go-to cultural phenomenon of that moment in a lot of ways. Which full disclosure, I did not know <laughs> until yeah. way too recently. <laughs> <laughs> thought he was a queer mean, like, man till, this whole time. last night when you watched the movie? <laughs> I, I plead the fifth. <laughs> I love that for you. In my research, like, I was watching the movie. I'm like, oh, he's got a girlfriend? I'll, maybe he's bi. And it's like, no, he's <laughs> amazing. I mean, ultimately, it's like, who knows, first of all. But <laughs> second of all, I think this gets to that question of, like, it's not just about who's writing stories, which is really important for representation, but it's about justice too. It's like, what are the stories telling us? And like, what are the themes? And so many stories throw folks under the bus, like yep. throw mar people who have been minoritized or marginalized under the bus, throw working people under the bus in, in favor of a different story that mm -hmm. uplifts people who are already powerful. So it's not perfect, but stories that honor people that have been shit on or have been experienced poor treatment or have been marginalized is still, I think, yeah, those themes are really powerful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Especially like we've been talking about all episode right now, like we are in a crisis for queer lives. Like mm -hmm. we have legalized same-sex marriage, but in some states, you can still be fired for being gay without any legal recourse. Even in even more states, you could be fired for being trans or genderqueer or not having a quote unquote appropriate gender identity. And then we still are dealing with, it's not nearly the same um, epidemic that it was um, in the 80s and early 90s, but HIV AIDS is still a, a crisis, is still a, um, an issue. Housing for people with HIV AIDS, um, we talked about the don't say gay bill. We talked about these anti-trans healthcare bills, these banning women in sports, which are banning trans women in sports, which has an effect on, because we are in a white supremacist society, it's black women and other women of color who are bearing the brunt of that. Cisgender women are being given invasive testing of their genitals and bodies to make sure they are yeah. quote unquote that's, real that's women. Wild. There's so many layers and levels to this and, uh, fighting for queer justice it's like it's not moral majority today but it is still some of those same ideas uh bubbling under the surface and boiling over in a lot of areas of this country and globally like we have right-wing religious right pastors in the u.s who are not having too much success funding their agendas here who are taking their monies abroad and funding kill the gays bills in other countries and so then when we we need good queer representation. We need work that does queer justice and we need people to see it. I hope uh, kids in schools get to watch stories like this um, and get to um, see these stories that now their teachers aren't allowed to tell them um, because we need to know our history. It's important for us to know our history. Let's talk real quick because we've been, we've been talking for a while. Let's talk a little bit about casting choices. Um, 
obviously Andrew Garfield, like I bow down to the <laughs> a revelation. I've never said that to a person before, but I texted my cousin and uh, my friend. I was like, Andrew Garfield is a revelation. <laughs> and he yeah. is. He's so great, but so is the rest of the cast. Andrew Garfield, if you're listening, like, call me. I would like to work with you. Not in a romantic way. Not being a creep. I'm sure you Carlos can call like me on for both. <laughs> if you want to have a... I tried a... to close the gap because I knew, I knew what you was going to do. But I would also love to work with you as well. Um, <laughs> he said, he said, okay, for me, for me, it's the romantic part. Swimming <laughs> lessons. Maybe you want to have some wine. <laughs> or those that I do swimming lessons or you can give me swimming lessons. It's either way. I'm available for teaching or learning purposes. <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, um, yeah, no, he was great. He was so good. Um, he really brought Jonathan Larson to life. Like I've seen... Like, there's a couple of clips of him, the real-life Jonathan Larson in the mm. film. Um, and so, like, it works really well. Um, Robin Jesus is, like, amazing. Like, I remember seeing great. him. great. I'm so happy for him. So good. I remember seeing him yeah. the first time in this movie, Camp, which is about a bunch of, mm-hmm. like, teenagers who go to musical theater camp yeah. and um, sort of their dynamics. And so to see him go from that to In the Heights, to now um, The Boys in the Band, and um, Tick, Tick, Boom. Like, it's been really exciting to see his trajectory, and I wish him a long and impactful career, um, because he's clearly on the road. He was great, and all the vocalists were wonderful. Also Broadway, like heavyweights, some of them, and some of them like more newcomers as well. I did not expect Jennifer Hudson to be as good as she was. Like... You don't mean Jennifer Hudson. Not (laughs) (laughs) Vanessa Hudgens. (laughs) <laughs> so we're gonna cut that out <laughs> no you're gonna leave that in that's, that's some classic shit <laughs> that's I don't know how I went Jennifer, Vanessa Hudgens to Jennifer Hudson like there is not anything. I guess it's just the Hudgens uh, Hudson. Hudson so yeah I thought she was gonna be a bigger character based on the trailer like um, right yeah she comes in she's like what up boy genius I thought she was gonna be more of a central character <laughs> no but I'm glad I'm good for her like she for taking this part because she's you know pretty well known mm-hmm. but I'm, I feel she probably wanted to be part of this project um, and she does a lot of sing, a lot of the singing so yeah and she's done a lot of Netflix stuff like she's done like the princess switch movies and so she's really banking like with Netflix making a lot of money so when I saw her in it, I was like, okay, Vanessa Hudgens is going to be in it. But then it was so good. Like the one scene, um, oh, what is it called? Therapy. Um, mm, when him and Susan are having uh-huh. their fight and it cuts from their real life, well, the version of their real life fight to them performing that number on stage. And it's like the face acting, the the performance, their energy together, it just... I did not expect it from her. Like, I know she can act and she can sing because I would see High School Musical and all that. But I'm like, she did that. I did not expect that from her. And she did it. One thing that I think is interesting to note is that Jonathan Larson's work has given, created the space for basically now years and years of Part, like roles that are available for actors and performers of color to have um, these amazing roles in Rent for 
all the years that it was on Broadway, all of the revivals, all of the tours, um, this film, and not to be not to like posthumously pat him on the back for that, but just in terms of it's not about him. It's just in terms of thinking about the impact that his work has had mm-hmm. materially for just literally hundreds of artists of all backgrounds and and specifically for queer artists and artists of color, I think is one of these things that like, it's nice to talk about narratives and it's also nice to think about the material difference that that has made for people who have been able to build stability and build their careers off of these roles Mm -hmm. that come from his work. And in this case, it's like Lynn, you know, Lynn is at the helm of this and whoever else was part of the creative team, which I don't have at my fingertips right now, that decided to cast it in this way. And I imagine that the, the revival productions of Tick, Tick, Boom that are definitely coming will continue to cast a diverse performing mm-hmm. team and hopefully creative team going forward. And that makes these huge differences in people's day to day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know with Rent that it launched so many careers, like Jesse Williams went on to be on Law and Order, um, like uh, Daphne Rubin Vega went from being in Rent to she was in in the Heights, the movie. So like the material conditions are nothing to scoff at and opening up doors for more different kinds of stories on Broadway um, for better or worse, depending on your perspective with things like Hamilton, like people are getting paid and those roles have led to other roles. Like we covered, um, one night in Miami, would that have happened had Leslie Odom Jr. from um, Hamilton to um, One Night in Miami, like which amazingly hit Leslie Odom Jr. and Lynn and Karen Olivo did a production of Tick Tick Boom right before Hamilton came out that I see really? clips of on YouTube. Yeah, I I just learned this just now. Thank you. I'm gonna have okay. to find these clips and watch them. And I was just like, oh, you guys. <laughs> Which is the other thing. So it's like when we look at Hollywood, a lot of people have their people. And so they constantly re uh, use people. They bring back the same actors like people have the people that they collaborate with. Yes. Frequent collaborators. I was going to try to think of an example, but then I couldn't except for like DiCaprio and Scorsese. Oh, that's a great example. (laughs) Yes. Like DiCaprio and Scorsese constantly producing great work together. It seems thus far that Chris Jackson wasn't in Encanto. (laughs) Did I make that joke the first time or did I just think so? (laughs) But like Lin-Manuel Miranda has used some of the same um, actors in his various projects. So like Philippa Sue um, was one of the people at the Legends Sunday brunch scene. Um, Karen Olivo did Tick, Tick, Boom with him. And then she was um, in In the Heights. And so when more people get into the room and more people get to be in charge of creative decision-making, they are going to bring more new people with them. And so there's more opportunities for things to come in, for things to um, grow. Um, so just, I can't wait to see more. Amesies. Anyway, we loved it. It's too bad Omar's not here because I feel like he might, be able to offer like a little bit of a different <laughs> perspective since you and I just fell over each other to praise this. Um, so I'm sure there's definitely some critiques or some things that don't exactly hit, but I think for you and I, it, it, it just, the themes really resonated. Um, and I just, it makes me emotional to see 
joyful, justice-oriented narratives put out into the world. And so it really filled my heart. And I hope that everybody gets to check it out. Definitely going to watch it again. Garfield wins his Oscar, but I... We'll see. That, I'm into it. Um, so yeah, that's it, Carlos. Do you have any final thoughts? I think we hit all of the the big things. Again, if you haven't seen um, this film, I definitely recommend you check it out. Um, you can listen to the soundtrack. Um, definitely look into uh, Rent if you are so inclined and not really a musical theater fan. This still might be up your alley. And hit us up with what you think on Instagram at play.hype.dialogue or you can follow Carlos at carloscreates2018 or you can follow me at melamusio on Instagram and let us know what you think or you can email us as well. We gotta give our hype stars. Oh my god, I got <laughs> hype stars! It's five for me. I loved it. Oh, I think I want to say five too but part of me is like maybe four and a half. I know you want to stay at 4.5. You don't got to be like, (laughs) I mean, what would be the rationale for me saying 4.5? Like I would need to defend it, right? (laughs) 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 I'm looking at you like, give me the answer. Um, I'll do (laughs) 4.75. Fair enough. Yes. Um, That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. We out. Bye. Bye.